0: Well, this is the last week in our series out of 1 Corinthians about getting along with each other, Uh, living the truth in a shattered world where when we believe different things, it divides us, it separates us. Uh, It can do it on a national scale. It can do it locally. uh, It can do it in our own families and between individuals. And so how do we live as people Who seek peace with each other and who seek good relationships with each other when we don't always agree. One of the first things we took a look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where we said, Well, we remember that love is more important than knowledge. The temptation is to figure out who's right and stake everything on that and make everything revolve around it. We choose sides based on do we think the same things? Do we believe the same things? Instead of remembering that we are actually one big human family called into God's family. It's not that there are no differences between us. It's not that the truth doesn't matter because it deeply, deeply matters But we start thinking that people are our enemies when they think differently than we do. And God calls us to a better way. He calls us to the way of love, and He doesn't compromise on it. Jesus was right about everything all the time, but because He loved people, He died on the cross. He let God vindicate Him rather than vindicating himself by saying, I am smarter, I'll prove you all wrong all the time. Because sometimes it's really not about who's right and wrong anymore, is it? Or at least it's not about who's really got the truth or who really doesn't have the truth. It's about my way, not your way. And Jesus says, you can have either way. You can have my way, Jesus' way, or you can have your way. And my job is to love you to the end love is better than knowledge because it maintains relationship because it seeks to grow people up in the truth instead of bludgeon them to death with it sometimes we really like to bludgeon folks to death with the truth don't we secondly i uh, we need to recognize that although when we know the truth, we recognize what our rights are, all of the privileges and all of the responsibilities that we really have. But Paul reminds us in chapter 10, what are we supposed to do with our rights? We're supposed to treat them as secondary to the good of my neighbor. And why is that? Well, again, chapter 8, because the exercise of my rights can destroy my brother who's not as far along as i am my sister who doesn't uh, hasn't entered fully into the truth yet it can destroy them paul uses the example of meat sacrificed to idols he says a lot of you know that there's only one god and if you eat the meat sacrificed to idols you're not worshiping those idols but there are some people who don't know that and when they see you eating meat sacrificed to idols they assume you're worshiping idols so they are confirmed in their belief that idol worship is a good thing When it's the worst thing they could possibly be engaged in at all. The exercise of my rights has the potential to destroy my brother for whom Christ died. In chapter 9, we heard that when we forfeit our rights, it's a tangible living out of the gospel. It's a way of saying, I'm not just going to tell you what the gospel is. I'm going to show you what the gospel is in the same way that Jesus Christ did. Because he too had the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, even though they might not have phrased it that way in the first century. He too had that right, but he sacrificed it out of love for the very people who sought to take it away. When we give up our rights for the good of our neighbor not just because we want to be martyrs but for the good of our neighbor that's a way of saying this is what the gospel looks like and again in chapter 9 paul gave us something else he said if i if i were to take full advantage of my rights in the gospel i would be giving up my boast remember that as christians we're not supposed to boast we know this Because boasting says, look how great I am. But Paul's saying, you know, my job, and I don't have a choice on this. This is what I was made for. My job is to share the gospel with everyone that I meet. My boast is that I do it free of charge. I have the right, he says, if I sow spiritual things among you, is it wrong for me to reap material things? Not to become wealthy not to become rich, but to provide for his daily needs and his ministry. Is it wrong if I do that? It's absolutely not. It says over and over again in the Old Testament, do, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Right? Because in, uh, in order to actually harvest the grain, I'm not a farmer. I'm so sorry. But you, you they threw it on the ground and the oxen would walk all over it and beat out the grain from it. And they said the oxen are working, so don't muzzle the The oxen, while they're doing that, they get to eat some of their work. And if it's true for cows, for crying out loud, it's true for God's people. Paul says, that's my right, but I never want my right to become a stumbling block. And not only that, if I give up my right, it is an act of worship and service to my God. I didn't have to do it this way, but I can do it freely. Freely giving up my rights to worship my God. That's Paul's boast. And then finally we come to chapter 10. And you you might have noticed I did skip a bunch of chapter 10, and it's because this is our last week, and I just had to choose what we could get to. So I went to what I thought was the most important part for our series, beginning in verse 23. Paul says, I have the right to do anything you say, but... Not everything is beneficial, is it? I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Not everything builds up. And then he says, no one should seek their own good, but rather the good of others. See, Paul says the thing we should be concerned about more than anything else in our lives is not grabbing on to everything that we can get in this life. And isn't that tempting? Isn't that tempting? I could have it. I could have it. It's not wrong. No, it's whatever that choice is that's in front of us, whatever that right is that we want to hold on to. It's not wrong to want everyone to, to know that Christianity is really true, to defend it. It's not wrong to want to worship in our building, even when people are saying, don't worship in your building. It's not wrong to want to make a good life for ourselves in this world and to want to make a good life for our children in this world. But Paul is saying, that's not the way I want you to think. God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul, that's not how I want you to think. I don't want you to think about how to have the best life in this world. I want you to think about how to be the best servant to the people around you in this world. Because you're going to be here for 70 or 80 or 90 years if you have a pretty good life here. That's how long you'll be here but you'll be with me forever. Which life should you invest in? Which life should you live for? And how difficult is that? Can anyone tell me what heaven looks like? No. Because you haven't been there, number one. And number two, because the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what it looks like. I went to do a, I might have mentioned this recently as well, but I went to do a sermon series on heaven and hell a few years ago. I'm going to revisit that sometimes because I can do it better. Uh, but I, when I did this, I went and I asked a couple of my old professors, they said, where are some good resources I can get on, on heaven? And they said, well, there aren't any. Actually, one of my professors said, I'm actually writing that book right now. And I said, well, that doesn't help me, <laughs> sir. Uh, but the Bible, it just doesn't give us a lot to go on other than the fact that Jesus is there. Other than the fact that that's where we will live with God himself. Remember what we were saying about worship and praise just a little bit earlier in the, in the service? I mean, I'm going to pull it up. This is great. I got it written down. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins by reminding us that the chief purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If that's our chief purpose, are we living our chief purpose here? Now, maybe that doesn't sound compelling, right? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Like, we're just gonna, just gonna sing those church songs all of eternity? I mean, I like them. I don't know if I want to sing them forever and never nonstop. First of all, worship's a little more than just singing your church songs. But... Secondly, maybe it doesn't sound compelling because maybe that's because we don't understand praise very well in the first place. Lewis said it this way, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Remember, uh, if you have a close relationship in your life, It could be a husband or a wife. It could be a, a child, a parent. It could be a friend, whoever it is. Sometimes, do you just say, man, you are just great, and I just love you. Anyone ever want to say that kind of thing to another person? Yeah. And that's part of your enjoyment of that person, isn't it? You're saying it both so that person will know. I I want you to know it is important to me that you understand how good and beautiful you are. But it is also part of my pleasure to delight in your goodness, in your beauty, by naming it, by saying it. I would say it if nobody could hear. I say it to my other friends and acquaintances. There are moments where I just say, man, I have a great wife. This can be a real-life example, so I don't want to embarrass anybody. I'll move on. And it's just good to say it. It's just good to do it. And if you've ever been in one of those moments, you want to stretch it out. You want it to last. And that's what our relationship with God... It's supposed to be like that. And I don't want to mean that in a condemning sort of way this morning. Like, why do all of your relationships with God stink? Why don't you like him better? Why don't you want to worship him more? I want to set it up as this as the goal of our lives to realize this. To say, God is that good. I want to know him more. There is this song uh, 20 years ago or so, uh, In the Secret and the Quiet Place. I remember Sonic Flood kind of popularized it. I don't know if anyone knows who I'm talking about, but that's okay. In the secret and the quiet place and the stillness you are there, it, it, it ends by saying, I want to know you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. I'm going gonna, gonna to sing later. I'm not going to sing that one for you now, though. And, and that's, that's the trajectory of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. God is that great. He is that good. You know, when we share the gospel with people, I, the way we've gotten used to sharing the gospel, the way we think we need to share the gospel is, you are a sinner. You need salvation. Lucky for you. There is a Savior, Jesus, who died on the cross, paid the price of your sins so that you can live forever. This is all true. But you know what else is part of the gospel? There is a God who is greater than anything you can possibly imagine. He is so spectacular. He is so good. He is so wise. Don't you want to know a person like that? Don't you want to have a relationship with a God like that? That's gospel too. The gospel is so big. Our God is so big. And if we want to tell people about him, we don't just have to focus on one part of the gospel. We can give it all. Look at how good God is. I love, you know, people sometimes appear in God's presence in the Bible, like in the Old Testament, most famous one, Isaiah chapter six. There are songs after songs after songs written, uh, inspired by this passage. And by the way, this passage, uh, Same encounter is repeated in the book of Revelation. So it's not just Isaiah's experience. It's going to be our experience someday. It says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I want you to stop for a moment and understand he's not just like, here's some incidental details. Like, I just thought you'd be interested about some trivia. Like, this is the Jeopardy description of heaven where you don't have to really understand anything, but just know obscure facts. Heaven is the place where the train of God's robe fills the temple. Is that going to change your life? No. But if we understand what Isaiah is trying to communicate, his majesty is so great, there is no clothing out there that could possibly make him look any better, more wonderful Isaiah is struggling to find the words. Above this God, above the Lord, were seraphim, each with six wings. I can't even imagine seraphim. I, like the name itself makes me think I don't understand. With two wings, they covered their faces, two their feet, and two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Are you starting to get a picture Not just of the details, but maybe of the feelings of what Isaiah was thinking and feeling. Imagine, not just on earth, God's presence shakes the doorposts and the thresholds, but even in heaven. Heaven itself cannot contain our God. And the temple was filling with smoke. Why is this? Maybe it's because there are offerings everywhere. I actually think it's a sense of obscurity he is so great my mind is my vision is fuzzing i can't take it all in which is maybe supported but what isaiah does next woe to me i cried i am ruined for i am a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord almighty now you could take that and say man i'm just going to feel bad in god's presence but i think what we're really hearing is God's holiness was so apparent. His moral purity, his goodness, was so obvious at the very sight of him that Isaiah's very soul was unraveling in his presence because of the consciousness of his sin. I have let this great God down in my life. And God doesn't leave him there. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. You maybe, maybe Isaiah fell to his knees. I am undone, and God lifts him back up onto his feet. You can stand in my presence. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am and what that means, I will do for you. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. See how Isaiah is transformed and changed. He falls down knowing he's going to die, and God raises him up and gives him purpose. This is the great God that we serve. Beyond all description, beyond imagining, wouldn't it be better if we lived our lives in light of who God is rather than in light of what this world has to offer? Because our God never lets us down. He never stops satisfying us. Now, that needs a little proviso, doesn't it? Maybe you're here this morning and you are unsatisfied. Maybe you're unsatisfied not just because you don't have the stuff that you want, but because you're frustrated with what God is doing or not doing. I feel like the last couple of years uh, in our church, A lot of us have been going through exactly that. Some of us for longer than two years, some of us got through it and we're on the other side, some of us are still living it, whether it's been for a day, a week, a month, or a year. And it feels like God's still not showing up in the ways I want Him to show up. See, I think the fact that God satisfies us doesn't always mean I am satisfied every moment. Because we're not finished people. Remember? We're not finished people yet. If we expect to be satisfied in every moment, it's because we expect that we're already perfect. I know that this will come both as gifts and uh, feel a little bit like a curse at the same time. But James uh, chapter 1 James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when life is easy and everything goes well. No, that's not what he says. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may finally Be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know what that means? That means that when we go back to the book of Isaiah, do you know where we are in this life? We're on our knees. We're on our knees still. We have come into God's presence and we've seen something of his majesty and his glory. And we're still saying, I don't measure up. And God is in the process of bringing that burning stone, the live coal, and touching our lips and raising us up. As long as we walk on this earth, we're going to go through that over and over again. And James reminds us that, yeah, it's not that it doesn't hurt It's not that it isn't hard, but it's that there is light at the end. It's not for no reason. It's not purposeless that we suffer, but it's because of who God desires to make us. And who does he desire to make us? Mature and complete, not lacking a single thing. And I think what that should do for us is it should change our perspective where people are saying, God, make it better. Take away the hurt and the suffering. And we can pray that. God here's Jesus prayed that. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus said, Lord, if it's possible, don't send me to the cross. Take away this cup from me. But not as I will, as you will. That's the key. See, we we pray, God, if it's possible, take away this cup from me. Amen. There's nothing else to add to that prayer, God. (laughs) But not as I will, as you will. Remember the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, take this cup away. Thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. See, our chief concern is God's glory because that's the only thing at the end of the day that can really satisfy us. Look how it changed Isaiah and it will transform our lives. Not just this sense of I sinned, so I need forgiveness, so I'll go to God and God will forgive me and now what? Now who will I be? I sinned, and it points me to the fact that I need a Savior. I found a Savior, and what a Savior! We live our lives dancing because we have such a Savior. So, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So what do I do? How do I use my rights? Well, he says, uh, when eating this food sacrificed to idols has no negative impact on the people around you, feel be free. Be free. But when eating will negatively impact a neighbor's conscience and so obscure the gospel why would you ever stand in the way of the glory of God? Why would your life work toward anything but the glory of God? There's nothing bigger, nothing better, nothing more full of purpose, nothing at the end more satisfying, because at the end is our maturity. This is what Paul says in verses 25 to 29. I'm going to leave that to you to read and see how it comes out, because I want to... Take us to the end here. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Notice how at first he's just talking about, you know, don't mess up your fellow believers by eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now he's saying, don't mess up anybody. I don't care if they know Jesus or they don't. I don't care if they're part of your family or someone else's family. I don't care if they are your ethnic friends or your ethnic enemies. Your job is to communicate God's glory to each and every one of them. Do not cause anyone to stumble, not a single one. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we talk about this a lot here, the fact that God has tied up his glory with our good. Let me just give you a quick example. Gospel of John. Jesus says that he must be lifted up all throughout the Gospel of John. And when he said, I must be lifted up, he's talking about literally, I have to get on the cross and they will lift me up and I will die. But there's a double meaning there, isn't there? Because what else do we say? We must lift him up because he is full of glory. Richard Bauckham wrote a book uh, 20 years ago or so called God Crucified. It was a work of scholarship in which he was describing what, how are we to understand the nature of Jesus. Is he is he God just like the Father? It's a book on Trinitarian doctrine in a lot of ways. It's something you most of us will probably never read. But I read it because I love Trinitarian doctrine and I'm weird. And when I was reading this book, one of the things that Bauckham brings out is that Everywhere Jesus goes, everything he does, he is revealing who the Father is. And that means when he is lifted up on the cross, we see God clearly in that place. He is the suffering God, the one who has tied up his glory with our good, with our rescue and our salvation. And then Jesus said, follow me. And he didn't qualify it. Didn't say, follow me in all the places that are easy and pleasant. I love Psalm 23. It's a good psalm. We need it, right? It's, uh, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Do you remember that it then says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Rod and staff. I know we've got this romantic idea of the shepherd, right? In, in the 21st century, it's like, oh, he's, he's the one who loves the sheep and who takes care of the sheep. Remember what the rod and the staff are for? Good morning, you dumb sheep. And, and the crook, the hook on the end. No, don't go there. but he is still the good shepherd from whom we shall not want any more because he supplies all of our needs so that's the last bit here how do we live as people of peace who really believe in the truth in the midst of a world divided over the facts in the midst of a world spewing hatred to the people on the other side. We do it remembering that the most important thing that we do is we love, not just know. We do it remembering that our freedoms and our rights, yes, they are there for our good, but they can also be weaponized. They can harm the people around us, intentionally or not, and so we guard them And we cultivate them for the purpose of displaying God's glory. So that everyone will see clearly and understand. And when we do that, we're like Jesus. We're like the Master. We're obedient to Him. We are following Him because it's where Jesus has been before. That's why Paul ends with, follow my example As I follow Christ's. Can we be like that? Can we live like that? Not on our own, but with this company of saints and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be like Jesus as well.